Hi, this is Steve. There are some films that are hard. Those movies you know you're supposed to watch, but can't quite bring yourself to pull the trigger. Or the films you saw once and swore you'd never do that to yourself again. Then there's another kind of film. The kind you'd watch anytime, anyplace. The ones that stop you dead when you're switching channels, or makes you late to that important meeting because you just have to get to the end. These are the movies that we hold dear, that are special to us, in the way an old friend can be special, and no matter how many times we return to them, they always manage to touch us, because they live in our hearts. The Shawshank Redemption is that kind of movie. In fact, it's probably one of the most beloved movies in the history of cinema. Based on a little-known Stephen King novella, and written for the screen and directed by Frank Darabont, Shawshank bombed when it first appeared in theaters, but over time... With TV broadcasts and home video, this film became an all-time favorite. Now, I'm guessing most of you have probably already seen Shawshank, but if you haven't, it's time to break out of that prison and escape to cinephiles.net, that's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net, where you can buy the Blu-ray or stream the film on Amazon Prime. Then, get ready to begin our epic journey into one of my favorite films, The Shawshank Redemption... Part one, this Friday on The Cinephiles. I could see why some of the boys took him for snobby. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world. Like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say... I liked Andy from the start. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist and uh, producer, writer, and host of numerous shows over there at Collider and, of course, the Top Ten show as well and a co-host on this show. So looking forward to talking about... Today, one of my favorite films ever, and I'm excited that we're doing this for a patron, I think, Steve. That's right, John. It is the pick of a pa- of three, not just one, not oh, just two, but three, three of our patrons. Okay. Of course, Chris Alexakos. Of course, Alexakos. Um, thank you very much. He's been a longtime supporter of this, and I think the Top Ten show as well. Yes. Um, Laura Deverson and Todd Lewis all picked this film. Hello, John and Steve. My name is Chris. I'm from Greece. And as a long-time patron of the show, I'm truly honored that my pick, The Shawshank Redemption, finally made it to the show. I came to this movie at age 16, and as someone from another country, this movie always represented something truly American to me, from Andy's resilient spirit, to the interracial friendship between Andy and Red, to the nefarious big business dealings that sometimes plague your country. This movie had a slice of Americana written all over it, and I'm truly honored that it is part, finally, of the cinephile's history. I hope you have a great time discussing the movie. Goodbye. Hey guys, this is Todd from Lewiston, Maine. As a Mainer, I've come to realize that my state is only known for a few things, and one of them is Stephen King, the master of horror. I used to think that my favorite film based on one of his works, The Shawshank Redemption, wasn't a horror, but I've come to realize that what happens to Andy Dufresne is horrifying. It's about a man who's convicted of a terrible crime he did not commit, 
and is sent to live out the rest of his life in hell, where he must endure for decades, kept sane only by the relationships he cultivates and the hope that one day he might be free. And as we all know, hope is, you know what? I'll let you guys handle the rest. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Which I got to say, it's not surprising that we've got multiple people from our Patreon mm-hmm. to pick this film. It is one of the most beloved films uh, in the world. Yeah. And did you know that if you go on IMDb and do their chart of favorite films, this film is number one. Wow. This is the number one film on IMDb. And that, of course, is The Shawshank Redemption. Huh. It's Shawshank, Godfather 1, Godfather 2. Wow. Those are the three top films. Incredible. And fourth, I believe, is The Dark Knight. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So, yes, The Shawshank Redemption, based on the Stephen King novella, directed by Frank Darabont and written by Frank Darabont. This is such a great movie. Yeah. Do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, in the theaters. I I remember going to see it. I can't remember what mall theater I saw it in. (laughs) It might have been like somewhere in Fairfax one of these, I know that it wasn't one of the main places that I usually went to. It was showing in certain theaters at certain times in Virginia, and I made the trek out there to see it because of the trailer with Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. It just kind of attracted me, and I remember walking out of that theater just absolutely blown away by what I'd seen, but but also this feeling of how of that I've watched something completely unusual and maybe the term modern day classic for the first time occurred to me although i didn't know how to use that phrase at the time after i walked out watching this movie i I just had a i knew i'd seen something unique and special when i walked out yeah i i saw it in the theater too i Mm -hmm. think i saw it in walnut creek but i'm not 100 percent sure okay um and it i was already a big tim robbins fan i mean this is like peak tim robbins yeah i first seen him in the sure thing of course he's in top gun right bull durham he's in uh he's in a movie that i watched over and over again that is one of those where i you know where you revisit a film you're like oh this is not so good (laughs) but it was tape heads with tim robbins and john cusack yeah which i thought was hilarious i watched it a ton i watched cadillac man and jacob's ladder Mm -hmm. um and and of course then there was the player and bob roberts and then i mean it's like it's like oh my god this is the guy yeah like this is this amazing person hudsucker proxy and then we go into shawshank and of course i knew who morgan freeman was and had seen him in films and but this movie it just blew me away yeah i mean just and it was one and i know you're the same thing when you're switching channels and you come along shawshank (laughs) that's it yep i was at comic-con and we were supposed to go out somewhere all in the hotel room and it was time to go out and meet people at a bar or whatever you do at comic-con and the tv was on and someone was switching channels there was shawshank and we just stopped (laughs) and watched the last 25 minutes of shawshank and then we went out to a bar like it just will just stop you dead it is such a great film agreed yeah um and uh, uh, do you want to do a little pre-production? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is based on a novella by Stephen King okay. called Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. No, the, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and this came from a, a, a book he put together, a compilation of novellas, which Stephen King, it sounds like, he got a little tired. He was starting to get worried of, oh, I'm the horror guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not just the horror guy. I have some other ideas. And he'd written a couple of these. He wrote them each sort of... After finishing another novel, and I don't remember what, the, I think he wrote one after Salem's Lot, and he wrote one after Christine, and I forget what the other ones were, and uh, the four 
novellas in here are Shawshank Redemption or Rita Hayworth and, and Shawshank Redemption, which is the first one, mm -hmm. followed by Apt Pupil. Oh yeah, which became a movie. Which as became well. a movie. By the way, I just reread all these. Yeah. All right, I read Shawshank before. I'd never read the other ones. Ab Pupil might be the most disturbing and upsetting thing I've ever read in my entire life. Yeah. It is so painful and scary and awful. Mm -hmm. And then The Body, which became Stand By Me. Right. And another book called The Breathing Method. So that's three of these novellas actually became books. And one of the interesting things about Stephen King, he is the the writers had the second most movies made of any writer in mm -hmm. history. No surprise. You know who the number one is? Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Stephen King is like has fifty six movies or something made, and Shakespeare is like four hundred or something. Right, right, right. But but that's pretty amazing. Yep. You and know. he's experiencing career renaissance now again with all these remakes of his movies. Yeah. From before with Pet Cemetery coming out soon. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big Stephen King fan. Oh, I think he's an incredibly underrated writer. I think he writes so much that not everything he writes is great. Right. But when he writes great. It's great. And Shawshank is a great novella. It's beyond engrossing when you're caught up in a Stephen King Absolutely. book. Yeah. I, I miss those days when I could like dive into something over four or five days and just completely consume it, be unable to put it down. For me, it, it goes King, Crichton, Grisham. Mm, for just page turners. Yeah, just page yeah. turners. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, those are they're great. Mm -hmm. They're great writers. I mean, I don't think Grisham is actually a great writer. Well, I think Grisham <laughs> is a page turner. Right. Yeah. Um, same with Crichton. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but they're definitely. I've. I think. I. I think I went through Jurassic Park in about a day and a half. Oh yeah. I, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely pastures. And there's an interesting story too about how Frank Darabont discovered Stephen King, which is that he was in high school and he was a member of like a book club where you pay this much money and they send you a book mm -hmm. every every month. And he ran out of money and he's like, oh, I got to cancel that book club. Got to cancel the book club. Forgot. Book shows up. He goes, Oh shit! I got to send this back. I don't have the money. I think I'll open it up. And he opens it up kind of in the middle, reads a paragraph about a woman, a dead woman coming out of a bathtub in some hotel. <laughs> and he goes, I got to read this book. Yeah. And that book, of course, is The Shining. Mm -hmm. And from that point forward, Stephen King was his, was his guy. And here's something I didn't know, which is Stephen King. I don't know if he still does, but he had an offer out to film schools. Any film student who wants to make a film, adapt one of my short stories, can have the rights for $1. Wow. Yeah, and so there are all sorts of film students who made Stephen King stories. Of course, he will retain the rights to the film, right? but they can go make it and have their name on it, and so that's what Frank, Frank Darabont did. So he made a film uh, for, of a short called The Woman in the Room, which I've never seen, uh -huh. or, or never read the short either, sent it to Stephen King. King loved it, thought it was one of the best adaptations that any film school student had ever done. Wow. They maintained a relationship, uh, and he told him, I want to make anything, of everything you've ever written, I want to make. Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. Stephen King's like, you're crazy. That would never make a good movie. It's not cinematic. It's all this guy's kind of narration of this story that's really subtle and boring. It's a terrible idea. And Frank said, well, I want to do it. You know, what would you sell me the rights for? He said, I guess I'll sell you the rights for $5,000. So he buys the rights for $5,000. And he's starting to work as a screenwriter. And he had written the big, his big claim to fame was he wrote um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, okay. which is... Uh, Dreamcatch. Dream. No, not Dream Isn't that Dreamcatchers. Dream Warriors. Oh, Dream Warriors. I'm sorry. Dream Warriors. Yeah. Dreamcatchers is a weird Ron Howard movie. That <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah. I ever saw. Um, so he goes, okay, I'll do it $5,000. The great thing is Stephen King never cashed the check. Oh, wow. After the movie came out, Stephen King framed the check, sent it back to him and said, keep this around if I ever need to, if I ever need bail money, <laughs> Steve. 
Isn't that great? That's great. And this is one of uh, Stephen King's favorite adaptations mm -hmm. of any of his books. Well, it certainly took his short story and completely built a whole universe yep. around it. More than what uh, Stephen King had built into the story. Yeah. And some of the other influences he had. Well, here are the, here's the movies he was thinking about when he wrote it. First of all, he loves Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. So Makes It's sense. a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Big, big influence. And the other influence is Goodfellas. Oh. Because of the voiceover and the way it's told through right. voiceover. Right. Because the whole book, if you read it, is narrated by Red. Mm -hmm. This nice white Irish guy <laughs> is telling you this story. And he's like, I need to maintain that voice. I, that, that's the author's voice. That's Stephen King's voice. I have to somehow maintain it. And he was scared he wouldn't be able to do it. So he looks to what's one of the best voiceover films of the last decade. And, of course, Goodfellas. He watched it over and over again. Yeah. Finishes the script. He took it to Castle Rock. Why would he take it to Castle Rock? Uh, I don't know. Because Castle Rock made Stand By Me another oh, movie. And not only that, the name Castle Rock is the town that right. Stand By Me takes place in. Yep. Rob Reiner already has a relationship with Stephen King. So he's like, this is the place to take the movie. Um, and the first person who, who read it is uh, Liz Glotzer, who's a producer. And she went to Reiner and she said she would quit Castle Rock if they did not buy this film. Wow. Reiner reads it. And he says, you're right. I want to make it. So he offers Frank Darabont $2.5 million for him to direct it. Rob Reiner. Wow. Yeah. And of course, we've talked about it before, but I think Reiner's run up to this point yeah, yeah. in time is one of the best runs in film, including Stand By Me. And I think at this point he's done or is in the middle of doing Misery. Yeah. So that's two Stephen King stories. And he's killing it right yeah. now. And he says, I want to direct your movie and I want to cast Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford. Oof. Interesting. I mean, you can, I can see it. I can see it, but I don't think it have the same power. And uh, and Frank Darabont said no. Hmm. And this is what he said about it. He said, "You can continue to defer your dreams in exchange for money, and you die without ever having done the thing you set out to do." Yeah, which kind of makes me feel like you either get busy living or you get busy dying. Great points, you man. know. Yep. And Reiner went okay. And really, it sounds like became a mentor, you know, like said, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to help you because Frank Darabont had never directed a feature film before. Yeah. He had directed a TV movie. He had written some movies. And this is his first feature. I, I, I mean, can you, th I can only think off the top of my head of one debut feature that, that is at this level. Go ahead. Citizen King. Wow. Strong. I mean, I'm not saying that this is at Citizen Kane's level. No, 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 no. But as debut features go... It's pretty incredible. I mean, Shawshank is among the most beloved films of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the film that Citizen Kane is. I don't I don't put it in my top 10 of right. greatest films ever made. Mm -hmm. But it is a sure hand that is making this movie. But it could quiet... You could quietly make that case for it as one of the top 10, 20 films ever made. Yeah. The script is incredible. The acting is phenomenal. The scope of the film is vast. And you go on this journey with this, uh, in essence, this cold narrator who you find a, not narrator, a cold protagonist yeah. who you eventually find compassion and sympathy for on their journey. Well, and it's funny. It's like, depending on how we define our terms, it's like, do I put this as one of the great films? Yeah. Not necessarily. If I were going to do a list of the most beloved films. Ah. Uh, Absolutely. Very much. And so. I'll say something else is I would say certainly in the general public, but even within our fans on the cinephiles, 
I bet there are more people listening to us right now who have seen Shawshank Redemption <laughs> than have seen Citizen Kane. Right. That is my guess. Probably true. You know, and that's not, you know, they're different, you know, because here's the thing. There are a lot of people who go like, all right, I'm going to watch Citizen Kane. It's time. I'm yeah, going to do they it. They ramp up. And they <laughs> ramp up and they go, okay, I did it. And it was an accomplishment. Right. And you and I love it and would probably watch it any time. Sure. But a lot of people wouldn't. Whereas if you said, nobody says that about Shawshank. It's like, oh, I get to watch Shawshank. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Ramp up and watch <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jump right in. Yeah. Um, uh, so he, he, he's going to direct it. Lots of talk about who's going to be in this movie. Tom Hanks was, was discussed. Great Kevin movie. Costner was discussed. Oh. But Hanks was off making Forrest Gump and Costner was off making Waterworld. Oh. So they were not available. Just as an aside, yeah. it just came out on Twitter today that Waterworld is coming out with a new director's cut. With an extra 40 minutes of footage Jesus. of the movie. Because that was the problem. <laughs> it wasn't long enough. In my mind, because I'm a, a, a masochist, I was immediately like, I'm going to watch these extra 40 minutes. How They're ma- not stopping me. How many times have you seen that movie? Waterworld? Yeah. Maybe six or seven times. I think I only saw it the once. Oh, I saw really? it in a movie theater, in mm-hmm. bad movie theater in Maine. Yeah. When I was driving around the country with my wife, who, with my f- fiance at the time. And I was just like, and I loved Kevin Costner. Yeah. He was a huge fan of Field of Dreams, Dances with Wolves. Of course. I was like, oh my God, he's one of my fans. I remember watching that movie. And you know the moment where you turn on a film where you're like going, I'm really, this is so cool. This is going to be so great. This is, it's, uh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) this is not so good. Yep. This was the one-two punch. This and the postman of the hubris, the uh, of Costner that ended up costing him. Yeah. So so they were out and Mm -hmm. then they were thinking about for Red. Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman. Oh, that makes all I mean, kinds of sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's they're phenomenal act. Yep. And, and it's, this is one of the weird ones. It's like I, you know, Tom Cruise is a great actor. Tom Hanks is a great actor. The, there's not, and Duvall and Hackman are obviously great actors. It's I can't picture anybody else yeah. than Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. But maybe I'd be saying the same thing if it had been Tom Hanks and Gene Hackman. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. maybe we saw that in the firm already. Yeah. Um, and it was it was uh, Liz Glotzner who said, "Let's cast Morgan Freeman," and he was brought in first. Yeah, and it was like, and it was, and the, it was funny. There was like the briefest of moment of the white Irish guy is being played by Morgan Freeman, and I was like, "No, it's great. Yeah, it makes perfect sense." Yeah. And then and then Tim Robbins, who was on quite a run, they bring him in, and that really sets sort of what the movie is going to be. And 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 we'll get into the rest of the cast as we come to him because the rest of the cast is phenomenal, stellar, down down the line, a great cast. Um, would you like to begin our film? Yeah, let's do it. If I didn't care more than words can say, we're sitting outside of the house, listening to music, and the camera moves in on Tim Robbins in a car, drinking. He is uh, got a gun, which he is loading. He looks upset. We see his hands as he loads the gun. It is a beautiful insert, and that is not Tim Robbins' hands. <laughs> that is Frank Darabont's hands. Oh, In go. fact, any, most of the times that you see hands of Tim Robbins, that's Frank. <laughs> which is something, by the way, that we do you do in filmmaking. I don't like doing it, uh, but which is that movie stars are expensive. Yeah. And so you don't tend to go like, we're going to waste their time spending at 45 minutes to get a perfect hand insert we'll just let them go and we'll do it later when we're on the set right and we'll just do it then 
I don't like doing it because I think hand acting is important and you're right there and it it's usually doesn't take that long. So I, I, I would rather use the actor's hands. Mm-hmm. But Frank Darabont did a lot of hand doubling. And part of the reason is they fucked up in the way they scheduled this. This is the first day of shooting. Right. And they scheduled to shoot all of him in the car and the lovers in the house and a confrontation with him and guns and all sorts of things happening in the house. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have time to do any of it. And so they just, and he, 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 and Frank's response was like, look, when in doubt, shoot the star. So he shot him in the car and made them gut that ride, <laughs> went up and shot the lovers, but they didn't have all the other stuff they wanted to shoot, which caused them to make other editing choices later on. Um, but the performance is great. Yeah. Tim Robbins in the car. Absolutely. And we see him drinking some whiskey and then we hear a trial. Mr. Dufresne, describe the confrontation you had with your wife the night that she was murdered. It was very bitter. Uh, and we go right in to hearing about that his wife was having an affair. She was angry. She wanted a divorce. They had a big fight, which was overheard by neighbors. I'll see you in hell before I see you in Reno. Those were the words you used, Mr. Dufresne, according to the testimony of your neighbors. If they say so. I really don't remember. I was upset. What do you think of Tim Robbins' performance in this scene? I think it's um, fantastic because... This is clearly a man uh, struggling with many emotions mm-hmm. who is not familiar with emotions. And just like most people who have those bursts of emotion who are not conditioned to be aware of their emotions, they can blank out of the things they say and not remember because remembering requires you to revisit that emotion and maybe... That's that's a difficult thing. So you see all of that kind of etched in his face. He's almost he's almost regressed to almost like a teenager on that stand because he's just kind of look he's just kind of staring down, looking. He's really just lost about this whole situation. Seems look overwhelmed the whole time. It's it's funny because I interpret it so differently, and I think mm. it's it's the um, for me it's as a person who is a very controlled emotional person. Right. It's like, well, that's the goal is to not show any emotions. And that is working against him. Of course. It's like he was drunk and there are things he doesn't remember. And he's speaking it in this completely cold yeah. way. And of course, that's why everyone's turning against him because they see someone who will you, if you really had this thing where your wife is having an affair and then she was murdered. And now you're on trial. You would be feeling things. And we're seeing nothing. just nothing. This right. kind of blankness from him that's really he's a very disconcerting character mm-hmm. in a way and, it, and it's interesting you said just when we started it's like we're gonna spend a whole movie falling in love with this guy yeah but he is not lovable in this scene no he is like and and i wonder too because i don't know what i knew i think i knew that he was innocent right but i don't know that i knew and if you just watch this scene it yeah. seems fairly obvious that he's guilty yeah and when you find out that he is actually innocent way mm-hmm. later in the movie, it puts this scene in incredible context because he is beating himself up for what happened to his wife. Yes. Like he says later on, I didn't kill her, but I might as well have pulled the trigger. Right. Because I was cold to her and I was indifferent and I wasn't, I didn't give her the love that she needed and I didn't understand that. Right. And, and so that led her into this place. He's led her into this yeah. place to do what she did. Right. And yeah. put her in this position to be killed by this person we find out later and not by him, by someone else. Because if she wasn't having the affair, she wouldn't be at that place and right. she wouldn't have gotten killed. And so he feels that way. And in that, in that whole courtroom scene, I think that's when you go back and watch the movie the second time, 
you see all you of see that, that coursing exactly. through him. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. fantastic. And, and and what's happening right now is that the DA is putting up this narrative of like, because Andy says, well, I got drunk and I got a gun. And he says, oh, and then you went up and you murdered them. And he said, no. I sobered up and I threw my gun away in yeah. the river. And and I love too that he says, I threw my gun away in the river. And then he says, I thought I'd been very clear about this. <laughs> <laughs> that just sort of, not petulant, but just like, I'm explaining it in very simple terms. Right. Why? Because I don't think he understands that he could say something and people would think that he's a liar. Right. I think it's harder for him to believe that people think he's a murderer than they think that he would be lying about this. Like, no, I, I told you what I did. But that's the challenge of Andy Dufresne. How many times do we come across people who don't react or interpret things the way we think they should because of that's how we do it? And then we judge them for not thinking the way we think or reacting the way we think. Exactly. And therefore we judge their emotions. And it's like, well, no, I just react to it differently than you do. Right. And he's not trying to come off as petulant. But it certainly radiates to a majority of the people that he's petulant. Right. And the DA's response is like, I get a little hazy on this point where, okay, you threw it in the river. <laughs> but then the next day, the cleaning lady found their bullet-ridden bodies. Yeah. Doesn't it sound like a coincidence? And he's like, yeah, it does sound like a coincidence. And he keeps pushing on this. Yet you still maintain that you threw your gun into the river before the murders took place. That's very convenient. It's the truth. The police dragged the river and didn't find a gun. Right. Boy, that's also very convenient, isn't it, Mr. Dufresne? I love his response. Since I am innocent of this crime, sir, I find it decidedly inconvenient that the gun was never found. <laughs> right. I love that line mm -hmm. because it is so formal and articulate and cold. And it is exactly, <laughs> you, knowing Andy Dufresne as we've come to know him, like, we, of course that's how he's going to say that yeah. line. And it is exactly the wrong thing to right. say in this context. Yep. Um, and then we go and we're doing this intercutting where we see him back with the gun in the car with the booze as the DA is narrating what's happening because uh, they found footprints and fingerprints and a broken bottle and a beautiful woman and her lover murdered. And we're seeing all those things. Yeah. And the reason that it's intercut like this is because Frank Darabont didn't get to shoot all the other stuff that he wanted to shoot. This whole intercutting oh. is because of a failure in production. This was all figured out in post. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? As well. Because if you watch it and you're like, oh, how could it possibly be any other way? Well, Steve, you know, as a filmmaker, happy accidents happen yep. on the set all the time. Yep. Um, and we see Andy drinking in the car. We see the lights go off. We see the, hear the DA's argument. Then we get to the really what I will say puts the final bullet in this argument, which is four bullets per victim. Not six shots fired, but eight. That means... That he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload so that he could shoot each of them again. An extra bullet per lover. Right in the head. And that is the cruelty. That is the violence. That is the sickness of Andy Dufresne who murdered his wife and her lover. Mm -hmm. And it is a pretty damn persuasive argument. Mm -hmm. And we go back to the judge and he says... You strike me as a particularly icy and remorseless man, Mr. Dufresne. Makes me sick to look at you. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back. One for each of your victims. So be it. Let's go to a parole hearing. Morgan Freeman, 
takes off his hat, walks into this room. He's obviously uncomfortable. Yeah. They ask him to sit down. They tell him, you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Do you feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say that I'm a changed man. No longer a danger to society. That's God's honest truth. Before we get to whether or not this worked, <laughs> how do you feel about his performance in this scene? Oh, it's, you know, what you know is historical is this is a black man in a situation like this having to, you know, go hat in hand to ask for forgiveness mm. or to mm. be let go. What feels like either a, a southern town or a Midwest town. And uh, so he thinks he's like checking all the boxes uh, so that he can be believed and he can be let go from this place. Um, and you immediately understand where this, when this film is set in the history of America, what time period it's set by how Morgan Freeman is reacting here. But I always now think about when I watch it, it that scene in Raising Arizona when he's trying to get parole and he's like, you know, you're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir, no way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. Okay, then. So yeah. though you get the back and forth Well, there. that's what I, yeah. yeah he's I, telling them what they want to hear, but they don't believe him. That is a great, I think that Raising Arizona is a perfect uh, example of what's happening here. Yeah. Because, because and that's like taking this to the degree of just turning into a complete ridiculous joke. But really, this is a ridiculous joke. Yeah. I think Morgan Freeman's performance, by the way, he says his performance in these three parole hearings is among the best acting he's done in his life. I would agree. And Because and what's happening, there's so many layers of him, he's done this enough yep. to know what it is that they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to put create the performance of the person he thinks they want him to be. Right. And he's doing a decent job, but not a perfect job. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of see the actor, not the actor Morgan Freeman, but the actor Red behind yeah. the facade trying to present himself in a particular way. Right. And, and it's funny because, of course, this is the character is a white character in the Stephen King book. Right, right. Is that race isn't a part of the structure of the story. And yet, because we have Morgan Freeman, of course, race comes into it as well. Mm -hmm. And it's so, I think he's almost, he's kind of almost persuasive to us. Yeah. Enough so that when that big stamp comes down and says denied, it's like, oh. And by the way, the picture of uh, Morgan Freeman, the young Morgan Freeman, that is Morgan Freeman's son. Wow. Yeah. And so that is the end of our first <laughs> parole hearing. And he heads outside. And, you know, this is not the first time he's been rejected. And now we hear Morgan Freeman voiceover. Yeah. Which is, I think, the beginning of one of the great voiceover careers in the history of film. I, as a voiceover artist, I would agree with you thoroughly. Yeah. One of the best voices and one of the most difficult to imitate. Uh, mm. I've never seen anyone besides Frank Caliendo do a great imitation of Morgan Freeman. By the way, if you don't know who that is... No, I, now I have to go look. Yes, you must, because he did an incredible rendition of LeBron James's letter to uh, the Cavs about leaving the Cavaliers uh, about a year ago. I think is what it is, or leaving Miami Heat to go back to Cleveland. Mm. And he did the... Because this letter that he posted in Sports Illustrated, 
And so he does the Morgan Freeman reading LeBron James's words. Oh it's beyond incredible, and you will fall out of your chair laughing at the like exact precision imitation. And maybe Steve, you'll put this up on the uh, Cinephiles Facebook page for people to enjoy. But sure. it's incredible. I will definitely, I will definitely take a look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, "There must be a con like me in every prison in America. I'm the guy who can get it for you: cigarettes, a bag of reefer, if that's your thing." A bottle of brandy to celebrate your kid's high school graduation. Damn near anything within reason. Yes, sir. I'm a regular Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> Morgan Freeman was so good. This is something that Gil Bellow said, who's one of the actors. And he was at the very first reading. And they had their very first table read. They're sitting in the prison. They read the script. Gil Bellow says that Morgan Freeman should have won an Oscar for his performance at the table read. <laughs> That's how good he was yeah. reading this voiceover. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Uh, and it's interesting. The first thing he says about Andy Dufresne is not about this moment. It's actually about a moment in the future. He says, so when Andy Dufresne came to me in 1949 and asked me to smuggle Rita Hayworth into the prison for him, I told him no problem. That's his first mention of Andy Dufresne. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's the most significant is mm-hmm. Rita Hayworth, because what does Rita Hayworth symbolize in this film? freedom yeah you know and that's it's his escape that is what this about and of course as always in case you haven't figured it out and haven't watched Shawshank we're gonna spoil the whole movie and so so you know go go to cinephiles.net buy the (laughs) film and then come back and watch it if you haven't seen it yet. what I also think is incredible Steve is the intro to both of these characters uh because both are being wronged by the system Morgan Freeman is rehabilitated Tim Robbins is innocent and here's their the be, where they're going to find their common ground and the camaraderie that builds their friendship, right? And we'll see in a little bit when Red says to him, everyone says they're innocent. Everyone thinks they're innocent or whatever he says there. And that's this beginning of this friendship. But the way they're introduced is both of them being on the wrong side of the system. Well, I think you bring up an interesting point. And it's funny. I've been struggling a little bit thinking about what is it I want to say. Mm. There's a lot I want to say about Shawshank. Sure. But what 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 is important? And you just kind of brought up a thing that I haven't been thinking about a lot, which is what is the purpose of this system? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this system? Because we certainly see people. So we certainly see bad people that are in prison. Mm-hmm. We're going to meet the sisters and Boggs. And sure. There's Jesus some Christ. really scary bad people yes. in prison. But we also see some really scary bad pre- people that are running the prison. Mm-hmm. And we see some really, really nice people in prison, like Brooks, mm-hmm. you know? And so the question of like, you know, and this idea of rehabilitation is clearly a joke. Yeah. You know, because Brooks isn't a danger to anybody and he's here forever. Yeah. You know, and Red, you know, we look at these people, we know Andy's not a danger to people and we know really Red's not a mm-hmm. danger to people. And so it's like, and this goes into, I mean, it's a bigger conversation than we can have in the cinephiles is like, but it's certainly one that's important today in this era is what are we trying to do when we put someone in prison? Okay. Well, I drag it out even bigger. To me, 
this occurred to me maybe 10, 15 years ago as I was watching it one time, that the prison itself represents America. The prison itself sure. is America with the corrupt people in charge who have the power with good and bad people in the general population, gen pop, and how you have to survive within this system in order for the people in charge to believe you, right? Because they've achieved this certain level of, of uh, I don't know, power or prestige or whatever you want to call it, and they decide your worth in their society. Well, and, and to take it a step further is that, yes, of course, you want to convince the people in charge of your truth. Right. But the real terrifying thing is, what if you never convince them of that? Exactly. Because the reality is, is that Andy can, Andy got really lucky in this film. I mean, we're jumping ahead a lot, but the, the more likely scenario is you just learn to live with the sisters yeah. and the guards and the warden and the corruption and the mm -hmm. pain and the violence and find some way to maintain yourself and that to, to use your metaphor. And there's a lot of analysis of what mm -hmm. the meaning of this film is, because we can say it's America. We can say it's just life. Yeah. True. Is that you walk around with all your troubles and then you get to decide whether you get busy living or you get busy dying. And right. you get to decide whether you hold on to hope or whether hope is a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Whether you, you know, just accommodate the corruption and the violence or whether you fight tooth and nail against it or whether you find some way to maintain your dignity the way that Andy does. Or maintain who you are. Who you are. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. Well, the, Anyway, we got, we're going to talk about this a lot, but this is why this is such a, it's, it's funny because it's really a lovely film about oh, yeah. some really dark stuff. And I think this is why he loves Frank Capra mm -hmm. because it's a wonderful life. And Mr. Smith and the other great Frank Capra films are lovely films about dark, dark stuff. Yeah. And about a singular man being wronged by a system or an institution. Yeah. Um, so Morgan Friedman comes out of the prison and just as he's getting to his guys, we hear a big siren come out and there is this helicopter shot going over the prison. That is just one of the most remarkable and iconic shots in film. Yeah. And the prison itself is stunning. Yeah. It is an absolutely amazing building. And of course, something people don't think about is that for this film in particular, Finding a building is like casting a character in your film. It is such an important thing. And they scoured the whole damn country to find a building that could be this prison, could be the Shawshank prison in the state of Maine when there is no such place. Right. And we finally found it in Mansfield, Ohio. It's the Mansfield State Penitentiary that had been shut down three years earlier for inhumane conditions, cruel and unusual punishment, and just being a really, really bad place. <laughs> And they shot almost everything in the film in this prison. The wow. courthouse is in the prison. The boarding house where Brooks goes is in the prison. And this place was falling apart, disgusting. And they had to build a ton of it. And the other thing we get in this helicopter shot, in addition to seeing the prison and a lot of two, three hundred extras and mm -hmm. prisoners, is we get that great Thomas Newman score. Yeah. It's fantastic. The Shawshank theme is beautiful. And Newman, when he saw the film with no music, he said, it's a perfect movie. I, all I'm going to do is make it worse. Right. That's how he felt, <laughs> get, you know, bringing himself up to this is what I have to do. And I think he does an amazing job. Mm -hmm. And the camera ends with this bus pulling up, and this is the new prisoners. And, and as the bus rolls up, here comes Clancy Brown. Yeah. It's one of the great villains in film. <laughs> Clancy Brown is just awesome. And one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. That's what I've heard. That's yeah, what he, everyone says. He came to Collider to be interviewed for Collider Live one time or by Christian for one-on-one or something, and he was just the nicest guy. 
Greatest voice ever, too. Jesus. Super jealous of that voice. And a presence, just a powerful damn presence. And he's a young guy when he made this, too. I think he's younger than Tim Robbins. Is. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the prisoners are starting to come up and yelling new fish. And Clancy Brown is insulting all of them as they're coming off the bus. And Andy looks scared. Mm-hmm. And particularly because you look at all those prisoners behind the fences yelling new fish and fresh fish at them. And what does Red do? Starts taking bets. Mm-hmm. Who's your horse? And that's the first time we meet William Sadler, who plays Haywood, another great, great actor. And great villain. And a great villain. Yeah. Except he's too. really a good guy in this. Yeah, he is in this guy. Yeah. This. yeah, yeah, yeah. But usually he's a villain, Die Hard 2, what have you. Yeah. Die Hard 2 is such a movie that I really liked. <laughs> and then like in subsequent years went, oh, this is this is not a good movie. I agree, and I can't convince Matt Nost of that truth. He no. loves Die Hard 2 for some insane reason. Well, but this is all, you know, it's also his age. Yeah, He's maybe. a few years younger. And so it's like, you know, we talked about this when we did um, uh, Casino Royale, mm. is that I think everyone has affection for the first Bond they saw when they were a kid, you know? So for me, Spy of Love, Who Loved Me, was my favorite Bond film because right. that was my first Bond film. <laughs> That is not a good movie. It's terrible. <laughs> no, it really is. Terrible film. And so is Die Hard 2. Yes. Um, how, old's, how old's Matt Nost? He's seven years younger than me, so... So he's... I think around there. So he's around 40. Sure, if you want to out me my age, sure. I thought you've already out. Was this Maybe I have, yeah. You've said your age many times. <laughs> yes. Um, I will happily edit it out if you don't want me to include <laughs> no, it. No. But if he's 40, that means that he... It came... I bet Die Hard 2 came out in 90... Probably 90. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that means he was 20. Yeah. That's just about right. Okay, anyway. Yeah. That's a strong, big digression. So we're taking bets, and uh, uh, Haywood, William Sadler, picks a heavyset guy. Um, and we hear that, and of course, who does Red pick? He picks Andy. Yep. Because he did not think very much of him. Mm-hmm. That was his first impression. He thought he was a soft, rich wimp. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment where Andy is... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, what I like about this scene, too, is what a complete difference of personality from the hat in hand red we saw in that uh, parole hearing. That's a great point. Right? We see now, this is who red actually is. Very much a man of the world who understands how it works in this prison system. Because he is a leader, Mm -hmm. and he is relaxed, Mm -hmm. and he knows who he is and who he's supposed to be. That is a great point, because when you see him first in front of the parole board, that is not who he is. Nope. He is trying to pretend to be, he is literally hat in hand, Mm -hmm. saying, yes, sir, boss. And they don't believe him until he actually is himself by the end. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, And we watch Andy as he looks and walks into the prison for the first time, and we see this low-angle POV shot looking up that is just a gorgeous shot as he walks into the space. And now we meet the warden, Bob Gunton. He's so good. He is great. In everything I've ever seen him, and he's so good. He was apparently acting in Demolition Man. Yes. At the time that he auditioned for this film. That's right. And he I think he had a shaved head or something. (laughs) And they like had to put a wig on him to convince anyone that he could play this warden. Um And he is a great, by the way, in the book, in the novella, there's like five different wardens. Oh. And one of, there are many changes that are all brilliant in this film. Mm-hmm. And one of them is like, no, we want one warden so we can have a real antagonist for the film. And he's there the whole time. And it works so much better. Yeah. Um, and he introduces himself. He introduces Hadley, which is Clancy Brown. It's Mr. Hadley. He's captain of the guards. I'm Mr. Norton, the warden. 
You are convicted felons. That's why they've sent you to me. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. The other rules, you'll figure out as you go along. Any questions? And one guy says, yeah, when do we get to eat? (sighs) (laughs) There's just a look over to Hadley. Yeah. And he walks up, pulling out his nightstick, and he says, You eat when we say you eat. You shit when we say you shit. And you piss when we say you piss. You got that, you maggot dick motherfucker? And the warden, who had been very religious holding his Bible up, says, I believe in two things. Discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Don't feel good about this. Nope. Once again, an evil person using religion to their own benefits. But this is one of my questions about the movie. Mm-hmm. So does the warden, is he actually religious? Let me answer your question by saying this. Yes, in the way that he thinks well, that's he's religious. And we see this every day in our society with people who quote God and use it to, or the Bible, and use it to subjugate and hurt and judge and destroy people who don't believe the way they do and claim to be people of God and claim to be people of faith. It's just, it's so, cause there's sort of different scenarios. So one scenario is I'm not really religious, but I'm pretending to be religious right. for certain reasons, but I, I don't, I don't believe in any of that shit. Another one is I am religious I believe I'm religious, but are in complete denial about my behavior because it's like, if you believe in heaven and yeah. hell, you're obviously going to hell. Right. Or they actually see them. So so one is I'm denying the, th- I'm just not aware of the things that I'm doing mm-hmm. that are evil. And another is I actually think I'm doing the work of God, you know, by doing these horrible, horrible yep. things. I feel like I've been chosen to be the yeah. work of God to hand out judgment. I'm in this position to right. punish you as God's messenger or yeah, some yeah. shit like that. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, if there is a hell. Yeah. <laughs> the warden is going there. Yeah. He is a terrible person. Um, we set, go off to be showered. We get weird de-lousing power, powder thrown on them. And then they have to walk naked into the prison. Yeah. And we walk into the cell block, which is one of the few things. The cell block is one of the few things that wasn't actually in the prison. This was shot a little ways away in an old Westinghouse factory. And um, the production designer, you'll like this, a guy named Terrence Marsh. Mm-hmm. Started as a in the art department in the 50s. In the 60s, he was the assistant art director on a little film called Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. He was the art director on Dr. Zhivago. He uh, was also the, the production designer on Oliver, on Spaceballs, <laughs> on um, Hunt for Red October, Havana, Basic Instinct, and of course, Shawshank Redemption. Wow. So this is one of the great, and, and continued working until about 10 years ago. Hmm. I mean, this is one of the great guys of all time. Absolutely. And the stuff that he built is unbelievable. The set design, both in terms of building things from scratch, which is what this four-story cell block with incredible ways to shoot from all sorts of different angles is, but also rebuilding all of the stuff in the prison, which was just a wreck when they showed up. I mean, it's remarkable what they did. Yeah. So we see these guys marched in naked, and we hear again, we're um, with Red's voiceover, and he says, And when they put you in that cell, when those bars slam home, that's when you know it's for real. Old life blown away in the blink of an eye. 
Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. I don't think any movie made me feel prison the way this movie does. Uh, yeah, I thoroughly agree with you. Just like Full Metal Jacket made me feel like basic training, what basic training actually is. You saw that before you went to basic, right? I did, yes. I saw that before I went to basic. Um, and you see something like this, you feel an authenticity to this that is unsettling and overwhelming. I saw Full Metal Jacket sitting next to my friend Jeff, mm-hmm. who had literally just come back from basic, <laughs> like that week. <laughs> like he was on the break between basic and his assignment for like the specialty school. Or yeah, AIT, yeah, yeah, yeah. AIT. And he, I'm sitting next to him, and I could feel his reaction. <laughs> like he was having like an out-of-body experience you, watching that film. You do every time you watch it. You go back in there again. I think the first half of Full Metal Jacket is one of, the, one of Kubrick's best films. I could care less about the second half yeah. of the film. The first half is the only reason to watch the film. That movie, that that first half is amazing. Mm-hmm. That's his, it's just that, and then Eyes Wide Shut, right? I think he's. I think that. I think the first half of Film Jack is the last gasp of a great filmmaker. That's what I think too. Um, and then what's going to happen next is that we find out what these bets were, mm-hmm. which is the bets are which one of these new fish is going to break first. Yeah, on the first night. Yep. And of course, Red thinks that it's going to be Andy. And all these prisoners are in their bar, in barred up in the cage. The lights are out. Lights out! Other prisoners start calling at him and yelling at him <laughs> and trying to scare them. And you see the one guy who's the heavyset guy, yeah. and you see him start to break. And, of course, Sadler, uh, Haywood, he starts going after him directly. He says, Now you listen to these nitwits, you hear me? Tell you what, I'll introduce you around, make you feel right at home. I know a couple of big old bull queers that just love to make your acquaintance. Especially that big white mushy butt of yours. And what happens to that guy? He says, I don't belong here. I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And someone yells out, we have a winner. Where's fish? Where's fish? Where's fish? I don't want to go home. I want to go home. And this is horrible enough to begin with. Oh, sure. And then it goes to a more horrible place. And what's so interesting, because what they're doing now, Red's not yelling out at them. No. He's certainly willing to bet on it and make some money off it. But Haywood, because you said he plays a bad guy, mm-hmm. is that we're used to him being a bad guy. We kind of see him as a bad guy. And right now, he's acting like a bad mm-hmm. guy. And then up comes Hadley. What is your malfunction, you fat barrel of monkey spunk? Speaking of Full Metal Jacket, yeah, what's your major malfunction profile? <laughs> I ain't supposed to be here. Not me. I ain't going to count to three. I'm not even going to count to one. You will shut the fuck up or I'll sing you a lullaby. And now, Haywood, who was trying to get him to cry yep. a minute before, says, shut up. Yeah. Because suddenly it's gotten, it's not a game now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really wasn't a game before, but now this has gotten really serious. This guy doesn't know how serious it is. Right. Or he just has fallen apart so much he doesn't, isn't aware. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a scary, scary moment. Absolutely, because it also underlines the what we're going to see throughout the movie is the evilness of Hadley. And the fact that someone like Sad Haywood's character now understands the, the stakes in just that moment by incurring Hadley's wrath uh, 
he feels a human connection to this guy in that moment, even though he was instigating this guy to break so he could win the money. He now feels a human connection to this guy to be like, just be quiet. You don't know what's coming. Stop it. He's actually trying to save this guy from a beating. Yep. What I think is even scarier than the evilness of Hadley or even the evilness of the warden is the evilness of the institution. Yeah, of course. Because there isn't any sense that what Hadley is doing is aberrant. There's a sense of what is that he might be a a tough screw to Mm -hmm. use the words of red, but what he is doing, all the other guards are right there. Yep. And there's a sense that if it was Hadley's nice night off, damn good chance the exact same thing would have happened. Yeah. You know? Um, and they pull this guy out and they just beat the crap out of him. Yeah. And it is from a distance. And you know what uh, Frank Darabont was thinking about when he filmed this? No. Rodney King. Oh, wow. Yeah. That makes sense. This is what, 92, this film? They were 90- shooting in 93. Yeah, 93. Okay. 90, uh, so it's okay. Got it. And and he and he yeah. thought, what's interesting is he he's like, I don't want to go in for close ups. I don't want to like show mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the blood and show the, the hits and all that stuff. I want to say back. And what he does, he didn't do it to make it more brutal, but in fact is more brutal. Yeah. Is we see it from a distance. We see the reaction of our prisoners' faces, including Red and Haywood and Andy. And then it is over. And the last kick to the head is just yep. brutal. And that guy is out. It's watching a shark attack. It's basically watching a shark attack. Or like, you know, I don't know, hyenas eating a carcass. It just, that's what it feels like. And Hadley yells, take that man to the infirmary. And, and then we're kind of back to Red, who says, His first night in the joint, Andy Dufresne cost me two packs of cigarettes. He never made a sound. <laughs> I love that line. It's great. He never made a sound. Because what this is about is it's almost like the discovery of a superhero. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is that Andy Dufresne, who looks like he's going to be the weakest person, right. ends up, it's the slow discovery of, oh, this is the strongest, smartest, most disciplined person in the world. Yeah, we learn to respect Andy through Red's eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um and well and one step further and to love him yes because Red is going to fall in love with it because this is a story of a love story between two men yep you know um and it's funny what's the name I, no, a I just romance wanna, yeah what's the um the uh, two women talking together about not about men and it's called uh, passes the something test oh I should remember a the Bertel name. is a Bertel? Bre- Bechtel. Bechtel yeah Brechtel test yeah yeah right. is that I, I obviously there are way way more movies about where men talk to each other about things that are not women. Right. Because that is the essential basic sexism of an entirely male-dominated world. True. But I will still say that the relationship between Red and Andy in this film is still really unique mm-hmm. and rare. It's not two guys that are out to take down a bank. Mm-hmm. It's not two guys who are cops. It's not two guys running from the police. It's not two guys that are going out to pick up girls. It's not two guys that are going to like fly into space or be superheroes. It's two guys who become friends in prison. Yeah. It is a very, very unique relationship. Mm-hmm. It's the next morning. All the prisoners comes out. Red takes a look at Andy. They march out and they're in the mess. And we go into the food line. And he gets his food, and I think there's a moment of realization of like that's another moment of like, oh, this is yeah, this is the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. He sits down alone, finds a worm in his food. It's just a great reaction from him. And then we hear, "Are are you going to eat that?" And plan on. And we turn around and see Brooks. Yeah, James Whitmore. 
I think he, I'm not, I can't quite tell you how important he is in, the, in this film. Mm. But if he wasn't here, I think we wouldn't be talking about this film right now. Oh, I agree. Thoroughly agree. Every, just about every character in this movie, it's like a, this movie's like a Jenga. You take out <laughs> one character and it falls to pieces. And Brooks is one of the most important, one of the thickest pieces in your Jenga uh, because of what he represents. Which, First of all, that's a great description. <laughs> <laughs> because of what he represents his future to be. Andy is looking in the mirror of what his life mm. will probably be. He will end up an old man in prison eventually. But he, but Brooks brings the softness to this whole movie, the the vul, the sweetness and the softness and the vulnerability he brings. I think he's the heart of the film. That's what I mean. In a, in a way, and then not the heart of like the center of the film, right, but right, like right. just like because Andy's a difficult person. Mm -hmm. He's an emotionless person, and Red is very much in control. Yeah. But Brooks, you just like, oh, I love this guy, yep. and you right from the scene. And by the way. The amount of time devoted to the character of Brooks in the novella by Stephen King is one paragraph. What? There is there is a character named Brooks who's yes. been there a really long time. There is a separate character who raises a bird. Ah. And there and and but that's there's no, the whole thing that we're mm. going to go through with Brooks is mm. not in the novella. It's mm. added by Frank Darabont, that's and good. it's so important. And Brooks is asking for that worm because he has a little tiny bird mm -hmm. that's hidden inside the jacket, inside pocket of his jacket, and he feeds the worm to the bird. And it's such a moment filled with life in this lifeless place, and in this moment where Andy was going, "Oh my God, I have to eat food with worms in it," and then the moment is transformed into this kind of beautiful moment. Um, and one interesting thing about it is that the ASPCA would not let him feed a worm to a bird because no animals can be harmed. And I'm so grateful to the organization that protects animals. And yet I also am sort of Frank Darabont was very upset about it. And he's like, look, literally, this was bought in a bait shop yeah. where all of these worms are going off to be killed by ant. That is their entire, if I hadn't bought them, they would have gone to fishermen and to yeah. other people feeding birds. They're worms. Yeah. And like, and it just seems somewhat ridiculous, but they did not actually feed a live worm to that bird. That's a shame. <laughs> not for the worm. That bird was hungry. <laughs> that bird, that worm don't know, don't, don't know better. Um, What's the name of the bird, Henry? Jake. Jake. The bird is named Jake. That may come up in the showdown, which is why I asked you. <laughs> well, there you go. And it, <laughs> fortunately, I literally had it. It's number six in my notes right in front of me. If I hadn't, if it hadn't been right there, I would not have been able to come up with it. Jake. Um, and Haywood, by the way, is really happy. He gets to collect his winnings and grabs those cigarettes. And and he kind of just goes, I love that big fat guy. I owe him one big sloppy kiss. And he turns over to the turns around to the guy who obviously works the infirmary and asks how he is. And that guy sat there all night in the infirmary, really busted up. The doctor wasn't there, and by the next morning, he was dead. Yeah, that is a shocking moment. Mm -hmm. And who do we see to see their shocked expression? But Andy Dufresne. Yeah. And his question is, what was his name? Yeah, and those guys get mad. They get mad. Yeah. You, who are you to ask what his name is? He's dead. It doesn't matter, Fish. Mm -hmm. That is a rough, rough moment. And, of course, I think that's the first moment that Red is actually interested. Because mm -hmm. that was an interesting question to ask. Right. What was his name? They're so used to living in the system of the prison that they forget there's a humanity to it, right? And that's what Andy is. 
Andy is the reminder to all of them of their humanity. Right. Because, well, and this is the thing, is like to, you know, you hear people who are policemen or doctors or morticians and they have to, they make gallows humor and jokes and things like that because there's certain things that they have to do in order to survive within a situation that is more grotesque or more difficult or more painful than other situations. And Andy's not that kind of person. He is somehow feels that he has to hold on to a certain level of his humanity in order to stay who he is, you know? Um, We're in the showers. He's alone. And now we meet Boggs, Mark Ralston. Mm -hmm. Also a great villain. Great villain. In a number of films. And his first question to Andy is, anybody get to you yet? That is a a disturbing line. You know, he's first trying to kind of I don't know if be nice about it is the right word, but to make an accommodation. Hey, we all need friends in here. I could be a friend to you. And walks away. And there's this other guy there, this kind of bigger guy. Mm -hmm. And there's a great, scary look between them. And Andy kind of leaves. And they're like, oh, hard to get. I like that. And we know where this is going to go. It's funny. um, For a brief moment, because I hadn't thought about this particular plot line, I was like, Maybe we'll show my son this. And then I went, oh, no. (laughs) No, this deals with some stuff that I'm not ready to have my child be familiar with. Um, We're in the laundry. It's later. And we hear from Red that Andy's mostly been keeping to himself. And then we're out on a baseball diamond. And and Red says it wasn't until a month before he decided to say two words to a man. And that man was me. Mm. So he didn't speak. After what was your name, what was his name, and what businesses that are yours, and the bogs in the shower, he didn't speak for a month. I think Andy cogitates, you know what I mean, and processes. Yeah. Good word. I I have my SAT results. What does it mean, cogitates? Uh, To think carefully, to contemplate, Mm. and to to kind of chew over and Mm -hmm. process slowly. Yeah. That's how he thinks. I can't date cogitators. (laughs) I found this out in my life. (laughs) Uh, There are women I've dated who are cogitators. After a discussion, they need two or three days before they can revisit the discussion and I like to have the discussion right then and there. <laughs> so I, I don't do well with cogitating. Well, that's why you and I don't date. <laughs> Fair. Fair. I, I am a cogitator. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so Andy comes up to Red and introduces himself, and Red looks at him and says, oh, wife-killing banker, why'd you do it? Mm. And Andy's response is, I didn't, I didn't since you asked. Since you asked. Yeah. Um, and I love Red. It's just like, well, you're going to fit like right in. Everybody here is innocent. And he turns over to Haywood. What are you in for? Didn't do it. Lawyer fucked me. <laughs> That's just great. Um, and then Red looks at him and says, rumor has it you're a real cold fish. Think your shit smells sweeter than everybody else. Why do you think that rumor exists? Oh, I think because he's aloof. So people prescribe their own insecurities or own issues on him because he is a blank slate. Yeah. We just said he didn't talk to anybody yep. for a month. Yep. And that gave all this opportunity for people to come to conclusions about him mm-hmm. that he is a cold fish. Which, by the way, to be clear, he, he is, is a cold, cold fish. fish. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But I we, I don't know that. And, and you know, But he never actually, acted elitist. He just was quiet. Yeah. He, all he did was he didn't talk mm-hmm. to anybody. Mm-hmm. And then Andy goes, I understand you're a man who can get things. Red line. I love I love the sound of Morgan Freeman's voice mm. and the rhythm of his voice. I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. And now we get into this thing of a rock hammer. 
And at this moment, he's suddenly interested. Well, what is it and why? What do you care? Well, if it was a toothbrush, I wouldn't ask questions. I'd just quote a price. But then a toothbrush is a non-lethal object, isn't it? I love Andy's way of like, once he hears the reason for the ejection, he goes, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Because Andy is a businessman. Mm -hmm. And he understands how business works. And he describes it and says that he was a rock hound. And he kind of bends down and picks up little pieces of quartz, mica, shale, limestone. And he kind of wants to, in a limited way, be able to do some of this rock stuff on his own. Once again, retain his humanity. Retain his humanity. Now, let me ask you, in this moment, do you think he's even remotely thinking about using this to get out of here? So, I, it, it's interesting that you ask that because I was thinking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think when I first saw the film, I thought he was already thinking of escape. Okay. But watching the film now and kind of studying it, it's very clear that later on when he sees the names carved in the wall and he tries to carve his name and a big rock comes out and he thinks that that is the moment that he I considers his I agree. Yep. Um, I always thought that he was thinking about it from the beginning. Okay. But I don't, th I think I was wrong. I think okay. it's, I think it's later on. Okay. You know, and the next thing is like, cause there are two questions about this rock hammer. One, are you going to use it to kill anybody? Right. He's like, no, I don't have any enemies. Wait a while. Sisters have taken quite a liking to you, especially Boggs. I don't suppose it would help any if I explain to them I'm not homosexual. Neither are they. You have to be human first. <laughs> and then the other question is, um, are you going to use this rock hammer to try to escape? And what does Andy do? Bursts out laughing. I missed something here. It was funny. You understand when you see the rock hammer. And they come up with a deal, which is that it's going to be 10 bucks, which is more than his normal rate. Mm -hmm. And that if he gets caught, you don't know me. And if you say my name, we never do business again. And they say, thank you. And he gets his name, which is, it, it, oh, and we talk about his name. And he says, why do they call you Red? And he says, maybe it's because I'm Irish. And <laughs> has this a nice... big smile on his face. <laughs> that, line is in, that line is in the book. Oh, really? And they said, once they cast Morgan Freeman, <laughs> I guess we're going to have to change the line. And it was the producer who said, wait a minute. Yeah. Maybe have Morgan Freeman say that line. And it's one of the great lines of the movie. It is. Because his his joy, <laughs> because you can also see he's been asked that question before. Right. And his joy at sort of just saying it is fantastic. He never does explain why he's called Red. Well, no, his last name is Redley or Redman. Oh, that's Redman right. Or oh, that's like right. That. That's, that's what, what it is. Okay. And then there's a really interesting, Andy walks away, kind of tossing a rock to himself. Mm -hmm. And he's still aloof and still in his own kind of pace and there's a wonderful bit of voiceover as he walks away which is i could see why some of the boys took him for snobby he had a quiet way about him a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here he strolled like a man in a park without a care or a worry in the world like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place Tim Robbins said that he always wanted to play Andy like he always had a secret. Mm. He walked around, he always had a secret. I think you can see that in almost every scene. There's almost always more going on, more that he's thinking about than that he's sharing. That's an old actor's trick. Yeah. It's, I've had so many directors say that to me in plays or small movies, be like, you have a secret. Always remember that you have a secret. Play the scene like you have a secret. So another, yeah, there's another interesting thing about this film in terms of people who analyze it. Mm. And one of the things is that this, a lot of people see this as a film for, that this is all a metaphor for Christianity and for Jesus. And that what the secret that Andy has is faith. 
that this is ah, a movie about faith. Interesting. And the power of a man who walks the world with faith or walks with hmm. God as opposed to someone who doesn't. Right. You know, and it, it, I think it's a perfectly... I love that. And there's more, there's more that people mm-hmm. have sort of said because this movie kind of invites you in to think about, well, what does this mean? Yeah. And what's interesting listening to Frank Darabont, of course, he didn't mean any of these things or a lot of them. Mm-hmm. He was trying to tell the story. And it's an interesting thing of going, because I thought about, because, you know, I'm on the filmmaker's side. Right. So I'm like, look, if it wasn't intended, then the thing you're interpreting, because I get irritated when people interpret things in crazy ways to sure. some degree. But there is some things that are open for interpretation. And the last thing that uh, Red says as Andy walks away. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. <laughs> it's great. We're in the laundry room and we see something exchange and some cigarettes go somewhere and Red gets a package and uh, and he opens up the package and we hear it. And it was right. I finally got the joke. It will take a man about 600 years to tunnel under the wall with one of these. And we see the little hammer. This is a great line to revisit later on. Yep. Uh, and Brooks delivers some books and as he gets to... Red, Red hands him the hammer and a couple of a pack of cigarettes, and he gets to Andy's cell and he gives Andy a book mm-hmm. and the hammer. Mm-hmm. Andy's working in the laundry. Uh he he goes, which is really the laundry in the prison. This is all yep. built in the prison. And um he goes into another room, he's alone, and there's Boggs, and he grabs a handful of some chemicals and he says, This will blind you if it gets you in your eyes. Boggs' response is, honey, hush. Oh man. It's scary. The thing and Who's the actor who plays Box? Uh, well, we we said his name, Dalton. Uh, yeah, it's 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 three pages up in my notes. Yeah, so don't I don't, don't worry about. I love the way he plays Boggs. Boggs is a snake, but an entrancing snake. He's very fluid in his movement and in his speech, and that's what makes you unsettled because you can't pin him down. He's slippering. Slippery out of your hands, and it's unsettling as hell. Maybe this is not an appropriate question, but do you think Boggs was a gay man on the outside? No. I don't think so. No, there's there's a lot of people that talk. Look, Steve, I could do prison with my, I could do prison no problem. Okay. Anal rape I couldn't do. And if you remove that from the equation, I could handle prison for 10 years. I could handle it. Rape is the problem. And that's where, to me, always I endeavor and I strive to never end up in prison because that's not something I could handle. Well, that is clearly a deterrent for you. <laughs> I'm just telling. I don't think it's something we should include in the official penal system, but I'm glad that it's keeping you um, out of trouble. <laughs> I'm just saying, well, no, I'm not saying I'd go off and commit crimes. I'm just saying, like, if I was ever to find myself in the Andy Dufresne situation where I got framed and but whatever, right. uh, I could survive in prison. But I couldn't survive if I was to be attacked like that constantly, like Andy is. And that's what is unsettling about the film. And this moment in the film is correlative to when they finally do the soap party on Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket. Right. It's These are two of the most unsettling moments in film for me to experience. No, it's horrible. And he mm. fights back. Yes, he does. And they kind of like that he fights back, and they beat him down. Yeah. And as they beat him down, we hear Red say, I wish I could tell you that Andy <sighs> fought the good fight. I wish I could tell you that. Mm-hmm. But prison is not the fairy tale world. And in that moment, we are not watching a regular movie anymore. No. In that moment, when he says that, 
this ain't this is real life. I mean, to go like, and this is to be clear, the hero of the film, a heroic hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like he is a true hero in every sense of the word, mm-hmm. and your true hero because what they say is that that things go on for a while. Prison is about routine, mm-hmm. and what we have to take from that is that one of the routines is the repeated violent rape of Andy Dufresne mm-hmm. by multiple men. And his constant fighting back. Yeah. And sometimes he gets away, yep. and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. And that, that and this is, again, this is this lesson of filmmaking that is off screen. Mm-hmm. That lives in our imaginations. And that is why I think it sticks with you in such a painful and upsetting way. Mm-hmm. And there's just this shot of Andy bruised standing in the winter in the snow, yeah. which means the time has passed. And that is just brutal. And like life, which this film can be accused of mirroring, you get fucked in the ass sometimes by people who want to take advantage of you. And that's life sometimes. And according to Red, that routine went on for two years. Two years, man. Yeah. But this is the other thing this film does really well, is it makes you feel time. Mm -hmm. Time in the long sense. Time in the sense of weeks and months and years. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes up that there's a job to do a, a work detail, and the work detail is up on the roof, laying down some tar. Mm-hmm. And that's a sweet job because it's May, and May is a nice time to be outside working. And really, if there's a lottery to just pick. It's going to be totally random who's going to pick to get this job. And who gets picked? Red, Red. and all his friends. <laughs> yes, right. And that's who's going to be out on the, on the roof. And they go out to tar the roof. Uh, which Red made twenty dollars uh, setting this all up, mm-hmm. and by the way, it was a not a nice, cool spring day in May. It was a hundred plus degree day in mid August, yeah. and that is hot, hot tar they're pouring on the roof. Oh, for real? And for real? Oh, wow! And the thing about hot tar, is, which is interesting, is that hot tar is wet when it's really hot. Mm-hmm which means 160 degrees or 200 degrees. I should have researched exactly the temperature. <laughs> but, and it's like 100 degrees on the roof, but it cools quickly. And so what happens is, is it goes from being liquid to being a 100-pound solid mop that they can no longer move. So you have these guys, so you have to get the the tar really, really hot so they can mop it. But then as they're doing the shot or setting up, it's starting to freeze solid and become like a heavy mass of solid black tar. Right. And you have these actors sweating like pigs trying to pretend they can still move their mops to get the takeoff. Otherwise, you have to stop, reheat all the tar, yep. and start over again. It was a brutal, brutal shoot. <laughs> um and what we hear while they're doing all the work is we hear the guards talking and then Hadley's brother has just passed away, which the guards first naturally say, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, oh, he's an asshole. <laughs> Hadley's such a dick mm-hmm. on every level because now he's mad. Then he says the guy made millions of dollars as like an oil guy. Uh, and he's mad about that because some assholes have all the luck. Mm-hmm. And then we hear that he's inheriting $35,000, the guards are saying, oh my God, that's great. And he's like, no, it's terrible because the government is going to take all the money. It's like, dude, like, yeah, <laughs> you're getting 35 grand. You know, why are you such a jerk? And of course, this is starting to pique Andy's interest. And he starts mm-hmm. to look over and Red's going, hey, 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 look down, look yeah. down. And Andy doesn't look down. And the more Hadley is bitching about the government and taxes, 
Andy doesn't only not look down, but he stands up. Yep. And he walks almost ghost-like. Starts to inch closer and closer. Closer and closer <laughs> until the moment that he's right there and says, Mr. Adley, do you trust your wife? <laughs> Is he on the spectrum? Like, is he got, yes, like? I thoroughly believe that about Andy, because Andy doesn't know he's walking up there to unsettle them. He's just walking up there because what that guy is, what Hadley is talking about, is Andy's connection back to his world that he used to know. Yeah, and so he finds himself almost supernaturally drawn to this and leaving. What had been this work detail, his other... That's what I think is very symbolic, the scene. It's him leaving his world that he currently is in now to float back to his previous world. And yet, but he can't resist being this unique bird by saying, do you trust your wife? Do you think when he stands up, he already has the, I can get something out of this? No. I think he does. Really? I think he does. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I, we don't, there's no way of knowing. Sure, but, sure, But sure. like, I think he's already gone. If I can do this, not that he thinks that he's going to do the books for the whole prison right, or anything right, like that, right. but just like, this is the toughest guard here. If I can do this. Interesting. Because like, the, the part of the question is, does he know he's risking his life when he stands up? And it, he could be zombie-like. He yeah. does. Or he could be like, if I die, I die. But it's worth it. You know, to do something, to right. be who I am and to maybe accomplish this very small thing. Well, I think throughout the whole movie, he's trying to retain himself. Yes, I and totally so, agree. And so in this moment, I don't think that he, uh, in my opinion, I don't think he's thinking that far. I can see why you feel that way. I don't think he's thinking that far ahead. I think he's just like, this is possible. This is what I know. Uh, this, if I do this, I still retain who I am. I, I can still totally remember there. who I yeah. am. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the moment he gets to them, the guards turn on him. <laughs> yeah. You know, weapons cocked. Right, because they're still. Because the he snuck up on them. I mean, he's a half second away from death right here. Right. And then Hadley, you know, says some horrible thing about sucking on his dick with no teeth or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. You know, truly awful. And then he asks again, "What I mean is, would she go behind your back to try to hamstring you?" And Hadley picks him up, takes him right to the edge of the roof where yeah. they did some very early CG to kind of make this look oh, good. acceptable. Because <laughs> they actually had uh, wires on them, so they weren't. Oh. Uh, they had to erase them. It was scary. It, it's a really scary shot. Yeah. Um, and then, and then he finally gets out. If you trust her, there's no reason you can't keep the whole thirty-five thousand. What did you say? Thirty-five thousand. Thirty-five thousand. All of it. All of it. Every penny. You better start making sense. If you want to keep all that money, give it to your wife. The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. Bullshit. Tax-free? Tax-free. IRS can't touch one cent. And everything stops. And they was like, well, you're a banker who killed your wife. Why, why should I trust you? And he's like, look, ask the IRS. And then I love, there's such a businessy way that yeah. he says this next thing. He says, actually, I feel stupid telling you this. You would have investigated it, this matter for yourself. <laughs> Which, of course, he never would have. Fucking A, I don't need no smart wife killing banker to tell me where the bear's sitting the fuckwheat. Of course not. But you do need someone to set up the tax free gift for you, and that'll cost you. A lawyer, for example. Bunch of ball washing bastards. Right. I suppose I could set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. So nice of him to say free of charge, <laughs> don't you think? Yes. <laughs> and then he only wants to get one thing. 
I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> co-workers, get him. That's rich, ain't it? He calls them co-workers. His whole way of speaking. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He refuses to be part of the system. Refuses. Yep. Un- for, until for a small period of time, but for the majority of the movie, he refuses to be part of the system where he's constantly trying to remove himself from the system. But this is also why I say that I think he thought of this deal when he stood up because he comes up with that three beers for my coworkers very quickly. It's not like a new thought, you know? Maybe. I mean, of course we don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and I love his next line because, again, it's so lovely and odd, which was... I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. It's only my opinion. Sir. Right. Drinking a bottle of suds. I don't think Andy Dufresne uses the word, a phrase, a bottle of suds. I think Andy Dufresne, the banker, uses that word to make him seem more like a man of a people yep. in talking to people that are a social class lower than he is. Yeah, because I don't remember if he drinks any of the beer. I think he lets all the guys drink it. He doesn't. Right. He did it for the guys. Yeah. One of the things, so Clancy Brown was struggling with his character because he felt this guy is so one dimensional. Right. He's such, he's just evil. How do I play him? And one of the other guards came up to him and said, listen, he's not a real person. And it's like, what do you mean? He's like, we only hear about these characters from red. This is how they see the guards. Right. And I was like, and then Clancy Brown went, oh, well, I can play that. Yeah. And, and that was, I was like, that's a really interesting way for an actor to kind of get into. Yep. A character. And of course it works. Hadley lets him go. Mm-hmm. And we cut to this. It's a day or later. And we see our prisoner sitting down. And Hadley handing up beers. And we hear Red say. And that's how it came to pass. That on the second to last day of the job. The convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof. In the spring of 49. Wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning. Drinking icy cold. Bohemia style beer. Courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Pick up while it's cold, ladies. There's such great lines in this movie, man. This scene, uh, this scene, almost moved me to tears almost every yeah. time. Yeah. Just the beauty of these guys just sitting, mm-hmm. drinking the beer, and Andy Dufresne with no beer, yeah, smiling. Right. Um, it's his little victories in this war against this prison, this system. We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, he spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. And we see Haywood goes and gives him, uh, uh, offers Andy a beer, and he says, no thanks, I gave up drinking. And this is the thing about it. Uh, this is why, you know, it's like he risked his life mm-hmm. to do this. He didn't want a beer. Right. What did he want? To feel human. Yeah. And he wanted his friends to feel human. Right. And he knew that this would make them. What, it, it, well, actually, th- to your point, is that he knew that them drinking this beer would make them feel he- human. Right. And what does make him feel, feel human? Providing the beer. Right. Giving to his friends made him feel human. Mm-hmm. So the next Christian metaphor the last supper jesus or jesus turning water into wine or the loaves and the fishes uh, yeah. is that the sharing with the people the creating out of nothing yeah. of the the alcoholic beverage you know like there and this is a 
treated as a religious scene on some level. Yeah. There's something, you know, beatific going mm-hmm. on in this moment. Um, yeah, it's a it's a remarkable, remarkable scene. Yeah. One other thing about it, by the way, is just in filmmaking that you don't think about is you have the voiceover playing, you have lines from the characters, and you have actions from the characters. And the voiceover has to fit in perfectly between the lines and the actions. Right. And of course, you can adjust the speed and timing of your voiceover, but you can't adjust the speed and timing of a shot once you've already shot it. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they recorded the voiceover first. So they had uh, Morgan Freeman in a room uh, in Ohio, and he recorded the entire voiceover for the film. Wow. He did the whole thing in 90 minutes. Of course he did. Basically one take through the whole thing. Jesus Christ. And they said it was perfect. Jesus Christ. And so when they did this scene on the set, they were playing Morgan Freeman's voiceover to get the timing of Haywood's cross to hand and the beer and all that stuff exactly right. (laughs) When they edited, they were amazed that this performance of the voiceover was just incredible. And they used it all to edit the film. Unfortunately, the equipment they used to record it wasn't very good. And so there was hiss. There was a And they had the best sound mixers in the world come in to try to get rid of the hiss. Couldn't get rid of the hiss. They said... Finally, we got to re-record it. Ugh. Even though it was, and Morgan Freeman did a perfect job. Did it in ninety minutes in one take. The first time, when he re-recorded it in Los Angeles on the good equipment, took him three weeks <laughs> to do the same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he recorded it after they finished shooting. Yeah. Right. So he lost the character. <laughs> well, and. Yeah, it's you, it's much harder to reproduce the magic than yes. to have the magic, of course. And now now edited with a certain kind of performance, and so they're like, you got to get right this performance. You can't just get a good performance; you have to get this one. Yeah, you know, to make it all work. Um, <laughs> playing a little checkers, and uh, Red's getting kinged, and Andy really wants to play chess. Um, and he talks about doing some carving, getting some soapstone, some alabaster, and again we're in this thing of like. Him wanting to be human, mm-hmm. finding ways to be human. Yep. And and Red again is asking him why he killed his his wife, and he says now, sort of using more the the words of the prison. No, I'm innocent, just like everyone else. <laughs> which is, which is weird because in in the language of the prison, that's saying you're guilty, right? And he asks Red, and Red's like, "No, I'm the only guilty guy in here. Mm-hmm. Guilty of murder, same as you." And he's carving, making some chess pieces. Um, he looks up and he sees there's names carved in the wall. And this is the moment we saw before. Yeah. He takes out his little hammer, starts to carve an A. The concrete is very soft and knocks a whole big piece out. And Andy thinks. Mm-hmm. Watching a movie. We see Red's watching the movie. Andy's sitting behind him. Red. Ah, wait, 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 wait. Here she comes. This is the part I really like is when she does that shit with her hair. Oh, yeah, I know. I've seen it three times this month. Ah. Gilda, are you decent? Up pops Rita Hayward. Me? <laughs> She's one of the most stunning women in the history of film. You know what's interesting about Rita Hayward, and you know, both of us know he, she married Orson Welles, and it was a, ter- a horrible relationship. But Rita Hayward said it, the hardest thing about Hollywood is that people went to bed with Gilda and woke up with me. Yep, that was her line, and it's like, wow, yeah. People forget the facade, man. I think that's got to sum up not only, you know, mm-hmm. many of the beautiful starlets of Hollywood, but honestly, most movie stars in general. Yeah. Is that 
you know, we feel that we have relationships with these people mm-hmm. and we really don't. Well, it's the same thing happening now to a lesser extent with Instagram people or people who are successful on Instagram. You see there, if you follow them on social media, you think they're living this glamorous right. life. But in fact, it takes an extra, astronomical amount of effort to convey casualness in product dis- develop, uh, product placement and product display as they're doing whatever in their daily life. Like I saw someone today who's a friend of mine. She has a number of, uh, of uh, product stuff that she does on her Instagram. I saw her walking across Hollywood Boulevard today, completely moping, holding two bags of shit, wow. just exhausted. I, 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 but later on, the pictures, ex- relaxed, extravagant, beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But that's the illusion. You sell the illusion, and that's what I think Rita's talking about. I mean, it's funny because I we mm-hmm. also have another mutual friend who is an Instagram person, and I yes. see her beautifully put together things, including her perfectly color coordinated children. Yeah, and you see comments on like, "Oh my god, your life is so amazing," blah blah blah. Yeah, which she's an amazing person, but it's also like, man, the work yeah. of creating that illusion. I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, um, but needless to say. Rita Hayworth has a powerful effect on the people in this yes. audience. And in the book, this film was not Gilda. Oh. Stephen King had them watching The Lost Weekend starring Ray Milland. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good film, by That's the way. That's a good film. I haven't seen it. I think I've only seen it once a long time ago. It is, a, it is rough. I saw it for the first time last year. Yeah. It's a rough movie. You're it's right. It's rough. Um, but a really good one. Yeah. Um, but... but they couldn't get the rights, or they could get the rights, mm-hmm. but it was extremely expensive. And so they went, oh, oh, man, we can't do it. We can't do what Stephen King wanted us to do. Well, we're working at Paramount. Let's just look through the Paramount archives mm-hmm. and see what we can find. And they went, oh, we have Gilda, which is literally the, the title of yeah. the actual novella is yeah. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Rita Hayworth is a key, key character you know, thing in the film. Oh, maybe this will be better. <laughs> Once again, a happy accident. Talk about, yeah, serendipity. And so, and that's when Andy says, can you get me Rita Hayworth? Or he says, first he says, I understand that you're a man who knows how to get things. And Morgan <laughs> Freeman has his same response. Yeah, I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. What do you want? Rita Hayworth. What? And then he's like, can you get me Rita Hayworth as soon as possible? He's like, well, I don't carry her around in my pants <laughs> as much as I'm <laughs> sad to say. Um, it's going to be a couple of weeks. And Andy goes back into the projection room, and there's Box. Yeah. And it looks like Andy's going to give up. And he reaches over and grabs that film reel and smacks him with that film reel. And again, he fights. Yep. And again, they get him down. And then Boggs says, Now, I'm going to open my fly, and you're going to swallow what I give you to swallow. And when you swallow mine, you're going to swallow roosters. You don't broke his nose. I think you ought to have something to show for it. Anything you put in my mouth, you're going to lose. And Boggs has a knife, a stiletto kind of thing to his head. And he says, you bite on anything, and this is going to go in your ear. And that's when Andy starts to talk about the human bite reflex. (laughs) And that sometimes you have to pry the teeth open with a crowbar. Again, this guy is a hero. Yeah. He's a hero in defeat. That's maybe that's the thing about it is that we think of a hero, a heroic person, mm-hmm. as somebody who wins. Right. Andy is not actually winning most of the time. Mm-hmm. Andy is not quitting. Like, okay, we say Superman is a hero and Captain America is a hero. What would they do in these circumstances? Would right. they have the courage of an Andy Dufresne? Well, would they have the intellect? That too. Andy is an intellectual hero. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And what we find out is that Boggs didn't put anything in his mouth. Mm-hmm. 
but he did beat him to within an inch of his life. Yeah. So much that Andy spent a month in the infirmary. Mm-hmm. And of course, the implication is not only did they do that, but they also once again raped him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and But Boggs gets put in the hole. Because of Andy having helped Hadley earlier. Yep. Yep. And um, they fuck Boggs up. Yeah. And he gets let out of the hold and he thinks he's done. Yeah. And he goes, oh, you know, whatever you say, boss. And he heads back to his cell. And who's in the cell? Hadley. Hadley. Yep. What? And Hadley beats the crap out of him. Originally, they were going to throw Hadley off that third story of the cell block. Hadley? I mean, sorry, they were going to sell throw Boggs. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, they were going to throw Boggs. But they didn't have the money. They didn't have mm-hmm. the time. So instead, they did what Frank uh, Darabont describes as the Jaws pulled out of frame shot. <laughs> yeah, which right. Which really is kind back. of better. Yeah. And the next thing that happens is Boggs is going off in a ambulance. Yeah. Um, I don't think he ever walked again. Is that what they said? Yeah, drinking food through a straw. Yeah. By the way, the ambulance, uh, the engine died, and that, and so Frank Darabont and a couple of crew members are pushing it into frame. <laughs> what you do, man? What you That's do? What you got to do what you, you got to make do. the film. Um, and from that point it. forward, nobody messes with uh, with um, Andy yeah. again. Um, and and here's the first time we start to hear that we are. Not only is Red like him, but the whole group likes him because they want to do something nice for Andy when he gets out of the infirmary. Yeah. We're going to get him some rocks. We're out in the some farmlands picking up stuff. There's a gag about Haywood has picked up a petrified bit of horse shit, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But they do find him some rocks. And when Andy gets out, there's a bunch of stuff waiting for him, including, most importantly, Rita Hayworth herself. Yeah. Um, and Andy arrives back in the cell, picks up the tube, and pulls out that poster of Rita Hayworth, which is the classic beautiful pinup. And there's a note, and the note says, no charge. Welcome back. That's friendship. Yep. You know, I, it's, it's, the, it's the small gesture from the person who has very little. Yeah. You know, that is true, true deep friendship. Mm-hmm. But now the guards are tossing the cells, and in comes the warden. Why do you think the wardens come down to Andy's cell? I don't know. See, I think this is he has now heard through Hadley that this guy did, helped him with the taxes. Ah, uh, there you go. And I think he wants to see him face to face and kind of feel him out. Measure, take the measure of the man. Exactly right. Oh, yeah. And Andy is reading the Bible when they come in. Yes. Which maybe he wasn't actually reading <laughs> yeah, the Bible exactly. when they came in. But that's what the warden thinks. And he yeah. asks him about his favorite passage from the Bible. And Andy quotes, watch thee for you know not when the master of the house cometh. <laughs> which seems very appropriate. Yeah. To which the warden quotes back chapter and verse. Um, I find that such an amazing thing, people that have actually memorized mm-hmm. the verses of the Bible. I don't trust people that do that. <laughs> it's an incredible um, you know, bit of memory and study, sure. shows a lot of study. Sure. And he quotes back, I am the light of the world. And Andy also knows chapter and verse. Yep. And he, uh, the warden says, I hear you're good with numbers. How nice a man should have a skill. And Hadley's kind of puttering around. He finds the rock blanket. He's looking at all the little polished blocks up on the window. Not too big a deal. The warden looks over and sees Rita Hayworth and says, can't say I approve of this, but I suppose exceptions can be made. And they exit. 
And then at the last minute, he turns and realizes he's still holding Andy's Bible. I almost forgot. I'd hate to deprive you of this. Salvation lies within. Yes, sir. <laughs> that is one of those, like... Once, because because this is a movie we're going to watch over and over and over yeah. again, and of course, during the first time you see it, that's just a okay, interesting moment. Yeah, when you see it over and over again, that is the coolest thing mm-hmm. in the world because salvation does lie. With yeah, you. absolutely. And later on, Andy gets called into the warden's office, and he sees there's like a needlepoint prayer up on the wall, which later we'll find out it's going to hide a safe. And he asks, and warden asks Andy if he enjoys working in the laundry. No, not especially. Well, perhaps we can find something more befitting of your education. And now we're in the library. And there's Big Crow there. And Andy talks to Jake. Apparently, Tim Robbins had to figure out the rhythms of when the crow would caw in order to know when to deliver his line. And Frank Darabont thought he was brilliant, that he could see the moment before he would do this move so he could time his entrance and his line to the crow's movements. Weird things people have to do when you're an actor. (laughs) And there's Brooks and... Andy says he's been reassigned to him, and Brooks is certainly happy to have him, and kind of shows him the lay of the land, and, and Andy asks, well, how long have you been here? Oh, I come here on odd five, and they made me librarian in 19 and 12. Now, this is around 4950, mm-hmm. probably. So Brooks has been here for 45 years. Yeah. And the question is, has Brooks ever had an assistant since 1912, so 37 years ago or something? Yeah. Nope, never had one. Why would and it would, why would, why are they doing this? And just as you're trying to figure out this question, in walks a guard, and Hadley points out uh, Andy uh, to the guard, mm-hmm. whose name, by the way, is Deacons, yep. much like our uh, cinematographer. And he walks in and says, "I want to set up a trust for my kid's education." And there's a moment of Tim Robbins processing this and then understanding. He's like, "Okay, well, why don't we have a seat?" And he asks Brooks for a pen, pen and a pencil, and he sits down and suddenly. He is Andy, the vice president of the bank. Yep. And we cut to Brooks telling the story to the guys in the mess. And then Andy says, Mr. Deacon, you want your sons to go to Harvard or Yale? He didn't say that. God is my witness. (laughs) Deacon just blinked for a second. Then he laughed himself silly. And afterwards, he actually shook Andy's hand. My ass. Shook his hand. And all the guys like, he didn't say that. Come on. And... At the end, the guard was so shook up that if Andy had been wearing a suit and had a like a little hulu bird at his desk, the guard would have shook his hand <laughs> and called him Mister Dufresne. Yeah, I mean he is. This is the heroic figure is emerging. Yeah, you know the guy that got them the beers and risked his life on the on the on the roof. The guy who fought against the sisters. The guy who somehow is not cowed by this place. And now this guy has the guards coming to him, treating him with respect. Yeah. And Red kind of looks at him and it's like, oh, you're making a few friends. And Andy says, I wouldn't say friend. I'm a convicted murderer who gives sound and financial advice. But maybe I can get them to expand the library. <laughs> so again, he's trying to see how can I do good? Yeah. Because it was said on the on the rooftop. That's what makes him feel human. Right. Is doing some good. Uh, and he says he's going to ask Warden for some funds and they all laugh. And Brooks tells him, I've been through six Wardens. Nothing is going to change. Mm. But Andy goes to the warden and asks about money. And warden says, no. He says, well, I'll write to the prison commission. And warden's like, I'll mail the letters. Yeah. Do we think the warden is a nice guy about this? No, I just think he's. No. Yeah, no. He's just servicing a yeah. a fool that is useful to him, I think, right. at this moment. Not anticipating it'll ever come to fruition. Right. But Andy writes a letter a week. No answers. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> and but a long line of guards come in to do the taxes. Yep. Next year, the warden comes in to get his taxes done. The year after that, they set up intramural baseball games with other prisons so those guards can get up and have Andy do his taxes. And now they start to need more people to do it. They have to have a whole team. And there's a moment where where Andy goes, oh, Red, can you get me a few more 1040s? And we see the Red is working in the corner, working on this whole operation. It is really fun. Giving it back what he got from all yeah. of them, yeah. A little while later, we're out in the yard, and we hear... There's something going on with Brooks. Yeah. And they rush over to the library, and there's Brooks with a knife to Haywood's throat. Yep. Well, yeah, Stay back! Okay. Stay back, outside! What the hell's going on? You tell me. Just one second, he's finding out come the knife. Dirty Brooks. Brooks, Brooks, we can talk about this, right? I'm not talking about God damn it, it's all talked out. I'm going to cut his fucking throat. Haywood? Wait, wait a minute. What's he done to you? How unexpected is this? I mean, it's like the nicest, sweetest, most gentle man in the world is suddenly trying to kill someone. Yeah. What was Brooks in for? Uh, I don't remember if he was in for murder it, or... They never or said. Whatever. They never said, yeah, right. It's got to be like... Well, because he's in here for Life. 50 years. Yeah, yeah 50 years. So I mean, it must got to be something murder. big. Yeah, yeah. So, so suddenly we're seeing something. He's got that knife up right on there, yeah. and everyone's completely freaked out mm -hmm. like you know trying to get him to put the knife down and in the end it's andy who's like calming and down calming and down yeah. um and finally they get him to put the knife down um you know and they're kind of like brooks look at his neck he's bleeding and brooks says it's the only thing that'll let me stay and that's our first clue mm -hmm. finally brooks lets him go he breaks down crying and haywood's like he's He's mad. He's mad that he's of the course. victim and no one's feeling sympathy. <laughs> no for one him. cares about him at all. He was like an inch away from getting yeah, yeah. cut. And all he did was say, come in to say fare thee well because his parole came through. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment we get it. Yeah. And we're on the bleachers. And Red is trying to explain that Brooks is institutionalized. Yeah. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. And what's interesting is the younger cons who haven't been there as long as Red, they're like, that's not right. That doesn't happen. And Red's going, oh, yeah. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. Is Red talking about himself? Sure. I think so, too. But I think it's also a lesson in life. Brother, when I was in my 20s, shit. Yeah. You know, no way. You get older, you realize it. So everyone listening to us in their 20s with all these fantastical blah, blah, blahs about, oh, I'm never going to end up like this, you never know what life is going to throw at you. You never know what's going to happen. You never know where you're going to end up. And all the things that people told you in their 40s and 50s, a lot of it might come true in your life. And you, when you hit 40 and 50, you might think to yourself, damn, all these guys knew exactly what the hell they were talking about. Well, here, here's the, I think the lesson that I learned is that you think when you're young, that the tough stuff to deal with is like the punch to the face. Right. It's like the single event, and you're like, I got to stand up against this adversity. Yeah. And in fact, the tough stuff is the slow 
uh, erosion bit by bit of something small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, you know, um, you when we first met was right around when I had that terrible back stuff. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't. I didn't sleep in a bed for nine mm-hmm. months. I couldn't sit in a chair for more than ten minutes. I was just in. I couldn't walk well. I yeah. was. It was total pain until I had surgery, and um, and what I and I didn't have a major injury. You know, I had just kind of had little things over a long period of time, and yeah. finally my back went. And it was like, oh, that was the lesson. And if I had had to deal with, I lived nine months a year with really, really bad pain. Mm-hmm. And when I looked forward at who I was going to be, if that continued for 20 years, I would have been a completely different person. Yeah, I would have been afraid. I would have been angry. I would have been irritable, short-tempered, impatient, all because of living in constant pain. Yeah, It's like it's not the big thing that that wears you down in your forties or fifties or sixties. It's the long term small things, Yep, you know, and you know, Brooks has been worn down slowly, but surely little piece by little piece. Mm -hmm. It's been so interesting to watch our friend. I'm seven years older than everybody else in our Florida Florida state State friends. It's been so funny to watch them all go through these periods of time. Right, because now they're, I met them all when they were early 20s. Now they're all in their 40s. Right. And they would scoff at the, oh, Roka, you're blah, blah, blah. And now every single thing as they've gotten older. The sad thing is we're still way ahead of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So we're still experiencing, like, (laughs) you don't know what this is like. If you say so, I think they caught up. Sure. (laughs) Um, Brooks is in a suit. Yeah. He says goodbye to Jake, sets him free. Yeah, man. Flies away. There's just a great, great look from James Whitmore, and we're at the gate, and we watch as Whitmore, and we're just kind of watching him step out over that barrier, yeah. and he walks out with this briefcase, and the score is just beautiful, beautiful here, uh, and he's on the bus, and he's clutching that bar and the seat in front of him, and he looks scared yep. and fragile, and the thing is, he's never been on a bus before. Mm-hmm. He's never been on a bus before. I mean, the guy went in in 1905. Yeah. He's coming out. It's 1950-something. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what What? can you imagine what that's like? How the world has changed, yeah. you know? And we start to hear his letters. The whole movie has been from Red. Yeah. And now we're hearing the story from Brooks. And, of course, this is not in the book. This is all Frank Darabont. Dear fellas, I can't believe how fast things move on the outside. I saw an automobile once when I was a kid, but now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself in a big damn hurry. They move him into his room and he kind of looks around. And we hear that the parole board got him into a halfway house and a job bagging groceries. It's hard work. I try to keep up, but my hands hurt most of the time. Make sure your man double bags. Last time he didn't double bag, and the bottom near came out. Make sure you double bag, like the lady says. Understand? Yes, sir. Surely will. I don't think the store manager likes me very much. And we see him feeding the birds. And he says, Sometimes after work, I go to the park and feed the birds. I keep thinking Jake might just show up and say hello. But he never does. By the way, Jake dies in the book. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's not Brooks because it's all kind of a right. little bit different, but he sets, you know, the guy who has the bird sets the bird free. Bird dies. Damn. Yeah. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it 
takes me a while to remember where I am. Do you ever have that where you wake up and you don't know where you are? Oh, sure. I've had that that is a weird... Yeah, there was a time recently I was I'd been up really really late and I was heading somewhere and I was a little and I was like you know what I'm gonna sleep in my car for twenty just try to get twenty <laughs> minutes and I set a little alarm on my phone the alarm went off and I went huh! and I literally had no idea where I was it took me it probably was eight seconds right right but it felt like a long time of like I literally had no clue yeah. where I was at all I have those night terrors where I wake up and I don't yeah. know where I'm at so yeah. Um, Maybe I should get me a gun to rob the foodway. Get me mm. home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it. Sort of like a bonus. <laughs> that tells you, like, you know, these people who work these halfway houses or, or I'm sorry, work these jobs at constant, like, they treat them like shit. Yeah. Because they can't. Well, it's also that this guy has spent his life as a criminal. Yeah. You know, so, like, you know, I mean, Brooks is in there for murder. He's yeah. a sweet, sweet old man, but I'd... I'm not saying it's out of the range of possibilities that he's thinking that. Yep. You know? I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. We see him open up a knife. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss. Not for an old crook like me. And he steps up to on a chair, which kind of wobbles, then up on a table that wobbles. We see him carve something up above the window, and then he finishes carving. He closes the knife. There's a great look from him. It's a mix of peaceful and regret and smiling, and it's just filled with a whole lot of stuff, a lot of life. Yep. In Jam- I mean, James Whitmore's face is just, you know, something really special. Yeah. And we see his feet, and we see his feet kind of go up on the, his toes, and we see his feet kick out the table from under him. And the feet don't fall. Yeah. And he hangs there. And then we see him hanging from behind. And that's a, the body double, by the way, is one of the drivers from the set who had gray hair and kind oh. of Whitmore's build. Oh, wow. So that's a, one of the drivers is doing that. Uh-huh. And the camera pulls back and back. And slowly we see what he carved up above the rafters. And it says, Brooks was, was here. Yeah. That um, I cry every time when I see the that I cried every time I see this sequence in the film, uh, but even more so since my dad died. You know sure. this idea of old age and being unable to escape it and feeling like the whole world is moving too fast. I saw that happen to my dad, and it's like it's tough to watch when you watch this sequence. Mm-hmm. There's there's stuff that echoes through, and it's such an incredible performance by Whitmore physically and verbally voiceover wise when he does the right. the read the letter it's incredible i really think it's so amazing because this is added by frank darabont mm-hmm. i think this scene frames emotionally what this movie is really about yeah and it frames prison in a way that this idea of being institutionalized and this idea that this actually is a home yeah it's a dark and terrible place but it's also a place that is filled with life mm-hmm. and hope in some strange way and that the feeling of loving Brooks and wanting him to be free and that in some weird way his freedom is killing himself yeah. you know that's how he, that's what this prison has done to him and and the feeling because we end up with Red and as Andy finishes reading the letter and Red says he should have died in here yeah 
that's which is everything is the opposite of what we would have thought. Mm-hmm. It, it, we would thought it'd be at least he got out and got to die outside, but that's not what it is. Right. He should have died in here. And of course, Red is the person most contemplating, most aware of his own institutionalization. He sees an affinity towards Brooks more than anybody else. Yep. And so that is he's contemplating his own life and his own future and his own death and what is in store for him right now. Yeah. It's a it's a lot. I think it's so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And what we see him experience later on in the film, the same beats uh and make a different decision. But yeah. still but be the close. same beats. Yes. He but was be close, close, of course. But he chooses freedom in a different way. Yeah. Right. And I think Brooks chose the freedom in this moment because it was the last decision he could make for himself. Yeah. Every other decision is going to be made for him. He has to show up at that time. He has to do the Jag bag the groceries. He has to be at that halfway house. The parole officer has to be able to check on him. There is no freedom, even in his freedom. There is no freedom. And the only way out to real freedom for him is the suicide. Well, it's funny, and I'm not saying a pro suicide message oh, no, 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 in any way, but I think, unlike any suicide in any other film I can think of, hmm. You go with the exception of things like Armageddon or something where someone's dying. For, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right. there he's like, oh, he's dying. in a cause. Yeah, yeah he's yeah, dying yeah. for a cause. But other than that kind of thing, this is the only one where you kind of see it and you go, man, this is really, really sad. Yeah. And yes, this is. Yes, I understand. Yes, I mm-hmm. I see why he did that. And you don't you know, it's like you don't go, oh, no, I wish you hadn't done that because right. I mean, you do. You're sad. It's right. a very different reaction, I think. I agree. And I think this moment is the turning point for the film. And as the turning point for the film, I think it's also the end, sadly, of part one mm. of our exploration of Shawshank. John, do you have anything you want to bring up before we, we take a break and come back next week? Well, I want to apologize to all the fans who just pounded something and were upset that we're stopping here and having to come back and they have to wait a week. Well, I have to say... <laughs> so to all of you that are hearing me say this right now, I feel you. I feel you. Frankly... Being in Shawshank Prison is a lot about patience. It is. There's a lot about waiting. And in fact, the building of anticipation towards your eventual escape, Yeah, I think, you know, thematically consistent with what this film is. Yeah. So sit with Brooks's suicide for a week and we'll be back to talk yeah. the rest of the film next week on The Cinephiles. <laughs> 